Assuming you were born after 1945, I would say there's a pretty good chance you've been charmed by Stuart Little at some point in your life. Maybe it was E.B. White's book that did it, or the 1999 adaptation starring Michael J. Fox, Gina Davis, and Hugh Laurie. Maybe it was a little bit of both. Regardless of how you came to meet our buddy Stuart, I am pretty confident that you're aware of him and at least some of his story. The short version is that Stuart Little is a mouse in a family of humans. As you can imagine, there's good, bad, and ugly that comes from that. As much as I love the Stuart Little movie, on episode 154, my guests and I, of course, turn our attention to the source material, E.B. White's 1945 children's book. And as you'll hear shortly, it was a very bizarre experience. I won't give too much away quite yet, but I will offer up a highly appropriate and hilarious, if I do say so myself, phrase that I came up with to sum up parts of the episode as I was editing it. Toxic masculinity. I'm taking a pause here so you can either laugh or roll your eyes. It's not all toxic masculinity though. On this episode, you'll hear us fangirl over E.B. White's beautiful writing, discuss his way of connecting so naturally to young readers, and relive some of our favorite moments from the story. We dig into the book's fascinating publishing history, which is very cool. On the other hand, we'll break down the elements of Stuart Little that were most disappointing and confusing to us as adult readers. Most notably, Stuart's egomaniacal tendencies and very bad date behavior. That's right, listeners, Stuart Little goes on a date. Do you remember that? I certainly didn't, and neither did my guest. I was so happy to have her along for the ride on this one. Deb Coletti is the award-winning and critically acclaimed author of nearly 20 books for adults and young adults, including Honey Baby Sweetheart, a finalist for the National Book Award, and A Heart in a Body in the World, a Michael L. Prince honor book. Her books have also won the Josette Frank Award for Fiction, the Washington State Book Award, and numerous other state awards and honors. Deb was also a finalist for the Penn USA Award. She lives with her family in Seattle. Follow Deb on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Deb Coletti. If you've been hanging out with me and listening to the podcast for a long time, you know the drill. But please bear with me for the newcomers, who I would very much love to see over on SSR social media too. Follow along with all things SSR on Instagram and Twitter at SSRpod, and check us out on Facebook at the SSR Podcast or the SSR Podcast community. I am most active on Instagram, where I share podcast behind the scenes, thoughts on reading more generally, and lots and lots of dog content featuring the real star of the show, my golden retriever, Irving. Don't forget to share the episodes you're loving to your Instagram story. It really does help more people find the show. Plus, it makes me so happy when I get a notification that I've been tagged, so thank you for sharing. You can also share your love for the show by posting a five-star rating or review on Apple Podcasts. Podcasters ask you to do this all the time because it really does go a long way for our shows. Patreon and the support I get from my incredible sponsors over there also go a long way. New to Patreon? No problem. It's a very cool site that allows superfans of independently produced content, like this very show, to support that content in exchange for one-of-a-kind rewards. I have totally fallen in love with Patreon this year and have been having tons of fun putting together bonus content for my patrons there. SSR patrons get access to SSR merch, bonus episodes, monthly newsletters, monthly video reading recaps, input on book selection, exclusive weekly voice notes, Patreon parties, grown-up book clubs, and so much more. It really is a good time, especially because it gives me the chance to connect even more with members of the listener community. It's also incredibly appreciated by yours truly, since I produce this podcast as a one-woman show without the financial support of a larger organization. Thank you to all of my patrons. If you're interested in learning more and getting in on these awesome perks for as little as a dollar per month, you can visit www.patreon.com slash ssrpodcast or go to www.ssrpodcast.com and click support at the top of the page. 
While we're supporting independent operations, don't forget to go to Libro.fm with all of your audiobook needs. With Libro.fm, you can support independent bookstores instead of giant corporations when you shop for audiobooks. The audiobooks are exactly the same as the ones you would get from the big guys, and they're the same price too. SSR listeners can get a discount on their first audiobook purchase from Libro.fm. Go to Libro.fm, that's L-I-B-R-O F-M, and use code SSRPOD when prompted on the site to get a two-month audiobook membership for the price of just one month. And a quick reminder that SSR has a storefront over on bookshop.org, which offers you another great opportunity to support indies. Check it out at bookshop.org slash shop slash SSRPOD. Okay, listeners, now it's time to get reacquainted with Stuart Little. Let's go to the show. Welcome to the SSR Podcast. You may recognize SSR as an elementary school era abbreviation for silent sustained reading, but if you don't, that's okay. What it stands for here is Shit She Read. Each week, we'll crack the binding on an old school read written for kids or teens and talk about it from a kind of grown-up perspective. We'll obsess over heartthrobs, relive the frustrations of middle school, and say an occasional WTF to a beloved author. If we haven't met yet, I'm your host, Ali Hofkosik, freelance writer, lifelong bookworm, and lover of anything covered in rainbow sprinkles. So find your favorite reading spot and a glass of wine. We're about to revisit some literary throwbacks right here on the SSR Podcast. Hi, Deb. Welcome to SSR. Hi, Allie. Thanks so much for having me. I'm thrilled to have you on the show. I didn't share this with you in our little pre-recording session, but I have a very soft spot in my heart for Debs because my mom is a Deb and she was my guest on the other episode we did about an E.B. White book. We talked about Charlotte's Web way back in the first year of the podcast. So yeah, this is all working out really nicely. Oh, so sweet. Hi, Mom, Deb. And yeah, Charlotte's Web had to be one of your first, right? Yeah, that was pretty early on. She was my guest for Mother's Day. We did like a special Mother's Day episode. And she wanted to do Charlotte's Web because that was a book that we read together. We also read The Trumpet of the Swan when I was a kid. I can't remember if we read Stuart Little together, but she does have her own special spot in her heart for E.B. White in general. So I have to give her a little shout out. And I'm excited to have you on the show, another Deb, for another E.B. White discussion. That's so great. I always talk about Charlotte's Web whenever I speak to schools. It was one of the first books that I remember being read aloud to me. And it just always is so special to me too. So yes, I love, love, love his books. Uh, Well, then you are in the right place. And today we are talking about Stuart Little, which was E.B. White's first book for children, although he was not especially committed to it being read by children. Maybe later on the episode, I will share the letter that he wrote to his editor where where he talks about this. He really just wanted to share this story. And it was published in 1945. And you've already mentioned your connection to Charlotte's Web. But before we go any further, I'm wondering if you could share a little bit about any personal connection that you have to Stuart Little and why you wanted to read it for today's episode? Well, I just remembered it fondly, but I hadn't read it, reread it in a while. Like I had Charlotte's Web and some other children's books I read in a while, but I haven't, I I haven't revisited it. But I always remembered, you know, the little, him sleeping in the little matchbox and of course him sailing and the canoe. So I had the really fond images of the book. And and so it was kind of, it was interesting to reread it. It really was. 
Yeah, it's an interesting revisit. And I found a lot of really fascinating think pieces and essays and even some Reddit threads from parents who have read this book with their kids more recently. Um, And all of those pieces shed a different light on the story. So I think we're going to have a lot to talk about. Yeah, And it's a little upsetting because I don't know about you, but it definitely gave me like a different perspective on this story, taking a deep dive into it at this point in 2021. It did. So I think we'll sort of, we'll lay their groundwork ahead of time, listeners. There's a lot of sweetness in this book, but at least in my experience, there was also a few uh, eyebrow-raising moments here. Yes, there were. Steward, steward, steward. Come on, buddy. I didn't remember you with dark edges. (laughs) (laughs) Even a mouse slash boy slash a boy that looks like a mouse slash a mouse that is a boy can have dark edges. (laughs) A little bit of an egomaniac. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about the inspiration for this book. I'm not sure how familiar you are, but E.B. White spoke about how the idea for Stuart Little came to him in a dream when he was sleeping on a train between, I believe, New York City and the Shenandoah Valley in 1926. So about 20 years passed between him first receiving this nugget of an idea in his brain as sort of like a direct download, if you will, and actually writing the book. And it has sort of this fascinating publication history. Are you familiar with it at all? No, I'm not. This is really interesting. Okay, so I will include links to all of this information in the show notes, listeners, if you want to take a look at it. And I will especially um, prompt you to take a look at the article that I found in The New Yorker, which is called The Lion and the Mouse. But to make a long story short, E.B. White was writing a lot of essays. He was a really popular voice in The New Yorker. His wife was also a writer. She was very involved in the literary community. And at one point, E.B. White was writing this column in Harper Magazine about how he was interested in writing children's books, and he thought that it would be really fun. Like He was like, this seems like it would be a good time, generally. And the superintendent of the children's room at the New York Public Library at the time, her name was Ann Carol Moore, she responded to him and was like, you should give it a try. I believe her exact words were something sort of playing on the lions that are out front at the New York Public Library. She was like, you could write a children's book that could make those lions roar, which was you know, very charming and sweet. And so they had this correspondence. They started writing letters to each other and they exchanged notes for a while and when Anne Carol Moore finally got the proof of Stuart Little, she actually tried to have the publication of it blocked. Really? Yeah, she was really disappointed by it. Did she want it blocked because she was disappointed or was there something that troubled her? She said, I have two quotes. So she said, I never was so disappointed in a book in my life. I know that's strong. And and for what it's worth, she was hugely influential in the children's book world at this point. And this is, of course, a time before like bookstagram and book bloggers and even a lot of the like more traditional book trade magazines that we have now. Like she was a huge voice in Kidlet at the time, but her influence was sort of winding down at this point. She was getting older. She was of the generation sort of ahead of E.B. White. So she said that she had never been so disappointed in a book in her life. She said that she felt that the two worlds were all mixed up and she generally just felt that the story was out of hand and she thought that Stuart as a character was kind of out of scale. Um, And she had been waiting to see the proof of the book for seven years. And during those seven years, 
she had really kind of like claimed E.B. White as her own, like she'd been talking him up all over town. And, you know, he was this very influential essayist. She was this very influential book voice or, or voice for kid lit in the community. And that's how it all kind of ended. And of course, the publication went through. And this sort of was like the end of her reign as like the big voice in children's literature. Isn't that wild? That is so wild. So the end was a big giant jab. <laughs> she went out yeah. with it. That's pretty brutal. Yeah. So I would definitely direct listeners if you're interested to reading the full story in The New Yorker, um, which again, I will link in the show notes. And I'm sure I didn't do all of the details of it justice, but that's kind of the- That is so wild. Yeah. That's kind of the overall picture of what happened. And then I also wanted to read, I referenced this in the beginning, but in the back of my edition of Stuart Little is this note that E.B. White wrote to his editor about, I I think he had just like a few stories written about Stort. And he said, herewith is an unfinished of a book called Stort Little. It would seem to be for children, but I'm not fussy who reads it. You said you wanted to look at this. So I am presenting it thus in its incomplete state. So yeah, he, uh, he didn't really seem to be quite sure where this book or these stories should live in a way that you, I'm sure as an author, would would be coming to an editor or an agent with a much clearer picture of like where a manuscript should exist in a bookstore, in a library. But he just seemed to feel like it should be read by someone. Interesting. Well, I think like outsized, the word that the critic used, I think her criticism was pretty outsized, but that it's, it's a great word for the book, actually. Yeah. You know, his imagination is outsized. He's dealing with his own size within the world. And his ego is a little outsized. (laughs) His adventures are outsized, but often in a delightful way. The ego thing is interesting. And I, I would encourage listeners to go listen to our episode about the mouse and the motorcycle from earlier this year. And in that episode, my guest talked about how he had actually gone ahead and read Stuart Little in addition to the mouse and the motorcycle, just to do sort of a compare and contrast. To compare mouse to mouse. Yes. And he was really not a fan of Stuart. Um, <laughs> he, really, he really was Team Ralph in that debate. I think so. He was a little grandiose in that classroom, kind of waltzing in there and taking over. But the big moment was his his little tantrum with the, the with the tiny girl. Yeah. I thought he really he showed some rodent red flags. <laughs> I think she um I was gonna say dodged a bullet, but I think she dodged a pellet or something. (laughs) She dodged an invisible car. Yes. Yeah, I think so. You have some red flags there in old Stuart. Yeah, definitely. Let's talk a little bit about Stuart's family of origin. Kind of talk about the little family and maybe what brought him to these moments of an outsized ego, these adventures that he goes on later in the book. So at the beginning, we're introduced to the little family. There's Mr. and Mrs. Little and George, who is Stuart's older brother. And then there is a cat named Snowbell. And Snowbell is one of my favorite characters for no other reason than I think it's hilarious that we get these glimpses into Snowbell's life, like casually walking around New York and talking to his other cat friends. Yeah. I just think it's great. It makes me laugh so hard every time I read this book. (laughs) And I did grow up 
watching the 1999 adaptation. And Snowbell is also really funny in that movie. And I, I will say that I think a lot of my feelings about Stuart Little as I was revisiting for this episode, like a lot of them do come from that movie just because it was a movie that my family and I watched a lot. And the movie is very different. Yeah. The biggest reason is that in the movie, Stuart Little is adopted as a mouse into this family of humans. That's exactly what I was going to say. And you can understand why they did that. <laughs> they had to really find a solution to that predicament that Stuart was born to a human family. So adoption was like a, was a pretty, you know, that was a, that was a good choice, don't you think? Yeah, I really am sort of, I can't even think of the word that I want to use. I'm still kind of like sitting with it in a bit of shock after finishing the book a few days ago. And I'm not even quite sure what to say about it. And it's funny because that was part of the conversation that came up in this episode about the mouse and the motorcycle. My guest sort of made the joke about like, you do realize that the idea here is that Mrs. Little actually like gave birth uh -huh. to a two inch mouse. Uh -huh, uh -huh, uh -huh. And I hadn't thought about that. Yeah, we don't really want to visualize that. I know. No, I mean, who does? But it's hard as an adult reading this book, not to get caught up on some of the logistics. You do a little double take on that one. Yeah. For sure. Yeah, it just it's interesting to me, and I I wonder if uh, I wonder if the book had been written by a woman, if maybe <laughs> if maybe it would have been handled differently. It wouldn't be so creepy if we. Yeah, they wouldn't have. Yeah, that is a it's a it's a creepy thing when you stop and think about it. Yeah, and it was I thought it was interesting too. You were talking about his family and maybe what led him to have such an outsized ego. If we're gonna get get into this. <laughs> Let's just go ahead and pathologize this now. <laughs> okay. Okay. Well, you know, they, first of all, could not speak about, they could not use the name of what he was. They didn't want to say he was a mouse. The word couldn't be used in the, in the family. So, you know, that's a little problematic right there. And also he was pretty much an object in that family and sort of made of use pretty well perpetually. You didn't see a lot of his, his relational, the relational aspects of, of them and him. He was always sort of doing things for them, you know. Yeah, it felt to me as though his relationship with his family members kind of lived in these two extreme mm -hmm. I just at these like extreme ends of the spectrum yeah. so on one end of the spectrum we have his family that is like so afraid yeah. to hurt his feelings that they outlaw the use of certain nursery rhymes in their home which I thought was like really kind of clever and then, yeah, you know, made me laugh just great writing and they really are like going out of their way to make life in their home accessible for him like they really are very sensitive to him and I feel like they are kind of walking on egg shells around him mm -hmm. but then on the other end of the spectrum it just feels like they're like making him do stuff yeah <laughs> like he's putting his life in danger repeatedly to like go get his mom's wedding ring inside a storm drain and yeah. like they've covered all of these bases so that he can brush his teeth in the morning but they haven't thought about things like the safety of like window blinds that could quite literally swallow him up or like what will happen if he gets stuck in the refrigerator and both of those things happened to him in the first like 40 pages of the book so it is interesting because it feels like in some ways they are so they're they're treating him so thoughtfully and so sensitively but yet like you said they don't really have any relationship with him they're just kind of like he's like in service of them he's in service yeah he's a bit of a he's a bit of an object it's kind of strange because it's it's psychologically astute in some ways i don't know that eb if eb white was intending that or not but but it kind of is 
you know, in terms of who Stuart inevitably is out in the world. Yeah, I think that's a fair point and not something that I thought about very much while I was reading. But now that you say it, I think that his his home life <laughs> maybe lent itself to him presenting presenting himself in the way that he ends up presenting himself later on in the book. And it was disappointing that we didn't get more of these like sweet moments with his family. Because again, as much as I hate to bring in like movies and film adaptations into these conversations about books, my memory of the movie is that like he has a very sweet relationship with his family and with his brother George. And George in this book He's really aggressive. Like he seems to want to just like yeah. rescue stored in these very like bold over the top ways. But other than that, he doesn't have a lot of brotherly concern for him. Right. But on the other hand, yes, Stuart is sometimes unlikable. And yet does that mean I kind of had some, you know, a little bit of awe, honestly, <laughs> that Evie White could give us in so few pages and using a mouse, such a character with so many actually complex aspects to him. You know, and, and readers do this all the time and they say, oh, we didn't like the character, so we don't like the book, or we don't like the character. And sometimes it's, well, that's what the author intended. <laughs> I kind of appreciated that to some degree from a writing perspective how well-rounded he was. He wasn't just sweet, you know? I love having conversations with guests about unlikable characters yeah. in general. And so I'm so glad you brought that up. Do you enjoy writing unlikable characters in your own books? Yes. Is that fun for you or do you struggle with it? Oh, I like it. I mean, we're all unlikable, you know, in ways that either we we show or don't show or, I mean, we all have that. And so it's truth. But yeah, it's it's fun. And when they're when they're more they're edging more into the unlikable than the likable, they do need to be complex if you want them to if you want that to ring true. Because no one is just all all unlikable. To do it right, to do it well, there has to be all kinds of shadings in my mind. And talking about my new book, that was a really big thing that I worked on with one of the main characters in the book is just all those little shadings. So I appreciated that with Stuart and how E.B. White did that. You know, there's moments where you're just, you just love the little guy and he's so brave and he's out there doing his thing and his confidence just makes your heart fill. But then, then he's really like, you know, really yeah. unlikable little guy. So I, I appreciated that. I thought, yeah, well, well done, man. And that's so few pages. Using a little mouse showed us some truth about the world, you know, and the people in it or the mice in it. Yeah. I have a couple of unlikable characters in my current work in progress yeah. and I love, it's I love fun. writing them. It's fun. It is fun. But you, you do have to write, you have to really make sure you do a lot of shading. Yeah. It's the point where sometimes I can't decide if I if they're actually unlikable or not. Mm -hmm. Sometimes yeah. I'm like, wait, am I being too sympathetic to them because I have kind of come to love them? <laughs> yes, but that's such a truth, right? I mean, how many how many people we meet and we think, do I? Don't I? Do I like them? What is it that I don't like? What is happening here? You know, so to examine that in detail while you're writing, I think is really important because that's when it that's when readers feel it, feel the truth of it. Yeah. I guess I have this idea that I have no, there's no foundation in truth for it, but I guess I have this suspicion. It's potentially an unfair assumption, an unfair suspicion that maybe E.B. White didn't 
really see Stuart as complex. Like there's this yeah. part of me that feels like he was presenting Stuart as this hero that had come to him in a dream. Yeah. Who is good and like uncomplicated and lacking nuance because there's this part of me that feels like like Evie White was this celebrated essayist who wrote for adults primarily. Ooh. And here he is like finally writing for kids. Yeah. And Ooh. I don't know. I just have this feeling that maybe and maybe I'm like Maybe I'm being rude to him. I don't know if there are any descendants of him listening. I'm like a little worried that he didn't see the nuance. And he was like, no, look at this great mouse. You're getting into juicy territory here because then E.B. White's telling us a lot about himself, right? And what he's seeing and he isn't seeing about that behavior. One of the things I always find interesting about reading memoir is when you can tell the writer, and maybe we can't tell, maybe, maybe this is just us, because who knows? Readers put all kinds of things on writers that they think we don't see and we do see. But when you're reading memoir and you're kind of getting the sense anyway that that writer isn't really hearing himself speak or herself speak, and you think, oh, you're revealing way more than you realize you're revealing, you know, those moments when you, when you read through. So yeah, if he didn't, if E.B. White did not know and was not aware of what he was doing, oh, we learned a lot about him reading Stuart Little. Yeah, I remember reading when I was getting ready for the Charlotte's Web episode, and that was a long time ago now. And listeners, I'll link to that episode in the show notes if you want to check it out. But I remember reading that Charlotte's Web was somewhat autobiographical. Like, I think E.B. White grew up on a farm, and there are pieces of that story that he pulled from his own life. But I didn't find anything about that in my research about Stuart Little. So who knows? I don't know. I guess I just have this idea that like this guy who was sitting on a story that he came up with in a dream yeah. about a mouse for yeah. 20 years, like he just sort of and because he was such a talented writer, and yeah. this is beautiful writing, like, yeah, I don't know, I have this idea that he just like sat down and wrote it. Here's my mouse. Yeah, here yeah. it is. <laughs> Here's my mouse. Yeah. And when I read this as a kid, and I bet when a lot of people read this when they're kids, it does seem uncomplicated. But yes. when you read it as an adult, it's like, hmm, I'm not, yeah, I'm just not really sure how to feel. Yeah, absolutely. I was sure how to feel when he had a tantrum with the little girl. Oh, yeah. I was sure how to feel yeah. then. Which is conveniently at the end of the book. Yeah. And so then it's not okay, don't have to... what you do. Yeah. It's not okay. <laughs> yeah. One other thing I wanted to talk about before we really get into his adventures is Another nuance of the book that I think I took for granted when I was younger and that I think a lot of people take for granted even when they're thinking about Stuart Little, because I do think that the like general plot of Stuart Little is pretty ubiquitous at this point. Even people who haven't read the book kind of understand what the story is about. Yeah. And the premise is like, oh, there's this family and a mouse comes to the family. Again, I think a lot of people forget this whole idea that he was like born into the family, but that's neither here nor there. But I think that what we forget is that there's actually some lack of clarity throughout the book as to whether he is a mouse or just a boy that looks like a mouse. Yeah. What did you think about that? Yeah. Because it comes up again and again in the story. Yeah, you just kind of have to go with it. I was going with it until I got to the the tiny girl and then I then I was thrown. Yeah. And when he got on the bus. But I'm okay with that. I mean, that's there's always sort of a suspension of, you know, <laughs> we have to go along with things when we we read. So I was I was okay with that part. Yeah, I think I was okay with it. It just took me by surprise. He didn't sound childlike in any way. He kind of went straight to to the sort of buttoned up gentleman with a lot of opinions. You know, <laughs> he he sort of skipped the whole feel of being a child, which was a little 
that was a little bit jarring and surprising. Yeah, it has the feel of dog years mm-hmm. almost. Mm-hmm. You know how yeah. like a, one mm-hmm. one dog year yeah. is equal to seven yeah. human years. Yeah. Stuart grows up very quickly. One mouse year is a, puts him at about fifty eight or something. <laughs> <laughs> it would seem that way yeah. because he's not. Yeah, I mean he's not like living at home among his family for very long no. before he's out having adventures. And let's start with like the fun, sweet ones yeah, first. Absolutely. Because those do exist in this story. And I don't want to be too hard on store, which I feel like I'm already being. No, that needs to be said. Absolutely. And there's some beautiful lines in there that definitely need to be mentioned, I think. But his adventures, because, oh, and the illustrations of when he's out on the pond sailing, I think are magnificent. Let's talk about that scene because that scene also is very prominent in the in the movie. And so that calls to mind a lot of really nice memories for me of watching the movie with my family. That I think is like the climax yeah. of the movie is like him going on this bull race and his whole family comes to cheer him on, even though he's always felt a little bit different. But it comes up pretty quickly in the book and it's it's not really like dwelled on very no. much. Like he kind of wanders there. Yeah. He stumbles on the race. It's not something that he prepares for. And it turns out that he like somehow must have had all this boating experience. And <laughs> as listeners might know, my husband and I have been binge watching Below Deck on Bravo. And so I feel like I I have a lot of questions about how Stuart got all of his boating experience because I've learned <laughs> well, he's that it's, it's you know, hard. All That's true. He's 58. There's a lot of sailing you can get in there. That's true. I just, I feel like I know a lot about sailing now because <laughs> of Below Deck. And I know about all the different roles on the boat, you know, deckhands, stewardesses, bosuns, captains, etc. And so I just would love to see Stuart's resume, although he does seem to hold his own really well. And it's cool. It feels like a big moment for him. He was pretty impressive. Yeah, my son is a sailor too. And I've always, that's always been such a big love in my life. And sometimes you wonder where those things initially snuck in, you know, and, and so many of those loves I can see when I read books of my childhood or think of experiences of my childhood and go, oh, that could have contributed to that feeling of a sailboat and being on a sailboat and how, what a wonderful, exciting experience that is. But yeah, it makes sense when you mention it, that in the movie, they restructured that, that plot. Because in in this, it's kind of adventure plus adventure plus adventure plus adventure. You know, so it makes sense to sort of put that big scene at the end because it is kind of a big scene that that arrives right away. But kind of wonderful. I loved it. Yeah, I love it too, especially because it's before we start to get into some of those complexities about Stuart. Yeah, we're in the romance phase with Stuart at that point. (laughs) We, we, We don't know him all that well yet. We're just having a great adventure with him. Yeah, Stort's at his best. He's rising to an occasion. He's demonstrating his loyalty because he has agreed to pilot this one boat. And then suddenly he's in demand by the other boats. And he's like, no, I'm sorry. I'm already committed. I'm going to stick to my boat. Yeah, he's just shining. And his confidence, yes, is outsized, but not in a way that grates on us quite yet. Not yet. (laughs) But I love those illustrations because they are as large as this whole, just imaginatively large as this whole idea of him. You know, there's this big ship he's on, this big sailing ship. 
Yeah, generally speaking, I just like love the illustrations in this book. And in the books that I read for the podcast, I do find that sometimes the illustrations slow me down. Sometimes they make me feel like I'm just getting bogged down in the story. But in this book, I really felt like it helped me move the story along because I I sometimes struggle with episodic books yeah. where it's just these sort of um, unrelated adventures, yeah, which, yeah. which you just mentioned. But I think that in this book, the illustrations kind of tie it all together and just, I don't know, it, it creates this really nice pacing in the story. Yeah. And helped us see it from his point of view too, that large ship. That's what he was experiencing. That is a delightful thing when you think about, you know, being a child, being small in the world and having this idea of yourself as larger and brave. And that is a really, that's a beautiful thing and a, and a, and a learning thing for us as little, you know, little people being in a big world. And so that is beautiful. It did get a little out of control as we've been sort of mentioning, but at the essence of it, if we take sort of the purity of that, it's a it's a lovely concept to convey, I think. Did you have the Sarah Pennypacker forward in the edition of the book that you read? No. No, you know what? The edition I read, I actually have a first edition of Stuart. You do? Yes, I um I collect antiquarian books. So I have one and I'm like, you know, I think I have Stuart. <laughs> so I was reading it very carefully, just like little, barely opening it and reading it. But it was, it was kind of added to the experience, thinking of it as it's there and it's original. Oh, that's cool. That's really cool. I'm jealous. But this foreword by Sarah Pennypacker does kind of speak to what you're talking about, just sort of the way that Stuart Little has some parallels with kid readers who are seeing the world as so much bigger than they are. Yeah. And I'll share a couple of lines from her foreword because I think you might enjoy them. She talks about how she likes to look for the quintessential sentence in every book she reads. Oh, yeah. And she believes that the quintessential sentence in Stuart Little is, I'm not tall enough to be noticed, thought Stuart, yet I'm tall enough to want to go to 72nd Street. <laughs> um, and she said, this line perfectly captures E.B. White's charm and skill and embodies the tone and the theme of the story. In short, it's the sentence that explains why, 75 years after its original publication, readers are still carrying their copies pressed tightly to their chests and writers are still falling on their knees in admiration. She also talks about how important it is that the title of the book is Stuart Little and not Little Stuart because the author here is making a point that Little does not define Stuart. Instead, Stuart defines Little. That's great. Yeah, isn't that great? She also talks about how he was a fairly small man himself. Apparently, he was so slight that when he was 18, he actually couldn't enlist in the military because he wasn't tall or heavy enough. Oh, more insight. Uh huh. So I guess that is some autobiographical Mm -hmm. material. And so he did know how it felt to be judged too little. And then this is the last line I'll read because otherwise I'll get carried away and just read this whole forward on the mic. But she says, his respect for kids shines through too. White never glosses over the mouse boy's challenges, but neither does he allow Stort any woe is meing. Stort is clear-eyed about his situation, but undeterred, and he's out to achieve his dreams. And so I do think that speaks to this idea that like, just as when we look at these illustrations and we think about these outsized adventures that Stort is having with the boat or everything else that he does, that's sort of a kid's perspective on all the big things that they can do in the world. And I think maybe that is, whether it was intentional or not, like that's kind of what the author was, he ultimately achieved. Yeah. Yeah. 
it feels like intentional, you know, it feels like that was the, the pure, the pure intention. I like that she wants to find the quintessential line in every book. And I think about those lines that they just, the ones that just stand out and stick with you, like you just pluck them out and you're like, yes, this one. And I think about that when he was in the classroom and he asked the boy, um, what's important in life? Mm. And he says something like, sunlight at the end of a dark afternoon, the way a baby's neck smells, a note of music. I, I don't know what the whole thing was, but it's so beautiful. And And there was this acknowledgement of, Yes, that's what's important. <laughs> but I thought, ah, right there. That's that's perfect. Yeah, the writing is just beyond in this book, even setting some of the weirdness aside. And it's lines like that that really, they really do it. But I do sort of feel like now I need to start going through every book I read and looking for the quintessential line. So <laughs> shout out to Sarah Pennypacker for getting, for getting that idea in my head. So let's talk about another one of Stuart's adventures. And I guess this is actually kind of the start of a larger adventure, which is his introduction to a bird named Margalow. And Margalow is found outside of the Little's house. She's frozen in the winter. She's not doing well. And they bring her inside, which did make me really appreciate the Little's, even though, as listeners know, I'm very afraid of birds. But I do love Margalow. And they nurse her back to health. And she and Stuart become very close. And even when she is strong enough to leave and fly outside again, they continue their relationship. Yeah. And she actually runs away because she finds out that Snowbell's friend, the Angora cat, and I just like these cats just make me laugh, is going to try to eat her. And so when Stuart discovers that she's gone, he decides that he needs to go after her because he loves her. And it does seem to be this like very pure, sweet love. And I I would just love to know a little bit more like what your impression of that commitment that he has to go after her was like, how did that strike you as an adult? That was really sweet. It kind of, it did show a little bit more of a pure heart. What struck me, I guess what I thought was kind of funny and interesting was when they were first talking about the bird. I'm with you though. I'm so, I'm scared of birds and I do (laughs) not like them in a house. (laughs) No, 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 no. That's a side note. But what I thought was funny was when the bird flew off and they were trying to determine what happened. And this is, again, something of a time. And they said, well, maybe she went to go and find her husband. Yeah. <laughs> Obviously. Yep. We got to, we got to go to that. You know, we, we got to go to that. But then much to his credit, he said something like, or she might just like being a single bird <laughs> something like that. I thought that's awesome. Yeah, that was funny. I appreciated that too. Yeah, but it, I thought it was really sweet. Did you have any, You did you have things that jumped to mind when you thought of that relationship? No, I I thought it was generally really sweet. I think for some reason, like, I think my memory of this book is that it's a deeper exploration of like the relationship between Stuart and Margalow and like why he feels so connected to her. And maybe that is from the movie. I'm not sure. Mm -hmm. Or maybe I just really remember from my experiences reading this book as a kid that he loved this bird Mm -hmm. and I Mm -hmm. wondered what that was about and like what he saw in her and how he maybe recognized parts of himself in her. So I guess I was sort of like, I wanted more of that because I think therein kind of lies maybe part of the bigger takeaways of this book, which is that like Stuart is different than his family and he brings something different to his family and he can be helpful and he like has 
different things to offer. And in feeling different, he's drawn to Margolo, who is also different from his family, but is also different than Stuart himself. They're different from each other, and they each can contribute different things to each other's lives. But I feel like I had to fill in a lot of those gaps myself. I don't know that he filled that out very much. She's also larger than he is, so that he felt safe with her, enough with her to love her, you know, and care about her, I thought was 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 kind of tender. Oh, yeah. Oh, that just gave me the chills. That is really lovely. And I don't, you know, I don't know that that he needed to flesh out more of their like romantic relationship because it is a book for children. But it is interesting to me that I remember their relationship feeling like such a love story. Mm-hmm. Right. And I don't really know. I guess I don't really know where that came from in my mind. Yeah, I don't I don't know if that jumped out at me in that way. I, I guess I just kind of, I felt more, more friend love. Friend love. Friend zone. Bird and mouse. Friends forever. <laughs> They'll have little friendship bracelets on little their little pink yeah, ankles. The really tiny ones, maybe. Yeah, yes. little petite anklets. Little really tiny, you know. <laughs> maybe just one bead slipped on. Yeah, that's all that they have room for. <laughs> so yeah, Stuart's going to go find Margolo and he sets off on this adventure. There are a couple of like little things along the way. He has to go get a car and so he goes back to see the dentist who he had met during the boat race. And this is where I was like, if I if I was Stuart's mother, I would be really angry because he went to this other <laughs> human adult to ask for help, but he like dipped out of their house without even saying goodbye. He did. And it's so weird. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. The whole dentist thing was a little convoluted. It seemed kind of tossed in there and almost an excuse to do the dialogue with the dental instruments in the guy's mouth, you know? Yeah, that's true. But kids love that kind of stuff. This will be funny and clever. We'll kind of put that. He'll go see a dentist. <laughs> yeah, I think kids love that. So maybe that's yeah. why he decided to do that. But he gets this like car that I didn't quite understand. There was like a button on this car that the dentist made because he's into making models that like if you push the button, the car becomes invisible. Mm-hmm. That was a little weird. Yeah, it lost me a bit on that one. Yeah, it lost me there. And then Stuart had to like wait for the car to die so that it would become visible again. I don't know. I could have done without it. I could have done without all of that. Yeah. Yeah. But then he like really sets out on his adventure and he's on a road trip. He finds his way to Ames Crossing and he becomes a substitute teacher, which I thought was just like a really funny concept. Again, you're, he was probably, you know, he's hitting the things that kids know. He goes to a dentist, yeah. is a substitute teacher, you know. Yeah, but man, does he ever step in and own that role? Yeah. Almost to a extreme there, I think. Yeah, he starts calling himself like the chairman of the world. A little grandiose there, but... Yeah, I liked though when he was asking the kids like what they were learning. He was going through all of these subjects. And then he was like explaining the way he was like, oh, well, if you already know what spelling is, then why do we even have to talk about it? When, of course, in an actual spelling class, you would learn how to spell words. But he was like, do you know what spelling is? Okay, great. Like moving on. Moving on. And he, and that's where he moved on to the important things, which I thought was great. Let's move on. Let's get to what's really important here. The smell of a baby's neck. Yeah, you're right. That is, that is the thing, that sunlight at the end of a dark afternoon. Absolutely. Yeah, and, and you shared you shared more um, sort of tidbits from that little lesson that he did earlier on, and I agree. We have alluded to this uh, sort of last like big adventure that he has, <laughs> and I think it's 
it's time to finally break it down a little bit more. And that is his interaction with a girl named Harriet Ames. And she lives in Ames Crossing. So she, you know, her last name is Ames. She is an important figure in this town. She comes from an important family and she's two inches tall. Like that's sort of the the big thing about her. Stuart hears about her and he's curious about her. He writes her a letter, like a very long, <laughs> kind of for me, like aggressive love letter. A little aggressive and too much too soon. Like he already sort of had the deal in the bag, you know? Yeah, he was like, well, you're obviously you're obviously going to love me. So you're going to love me. We're both the same size. Dating profile only said small and small. And so there you have there you had it. We're a match. Check, check, check. I found um, an article on Book Riot written in 2015 that's called 20 Things You Don't Remember About Stuart Little. And it's really oh, funny. Wow. So I'll include, yeah, I'll oh, include a link to it in the show notes. <laughs> it's really funny. And one of the one of the items on the list refers to this, again, this like pretty intense letter that he writes yeah. to Harriet. <laughs> the writer says, this is the part where you tell your kids they should definitely tell you if some mouse starts hitting on them. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> because that's really, he like he's like, don't tell your parents. <laughs> <laughs> this is one of the rodent red flags I was talking about. Yeah. He's like, don't tell your mom and dad because they'll just have a lot of questions. Instead, just meet me at this location right. at this place predetermined time right. and I'll take you on a date. Things right. that you really should not agree to do, Harriet. Right, right. And he's with all the assumption that his his demands are going to be met on that one. Yes. And to his credit, he does prepare a lot. He takes a lot of time. He decides he wants to take her canoeing because as we've established, he's he's a real man of the boat, water. We don't know if she has any interest in being a, in a canoe, however. That's a great point. What if she gets seasick? That is his plan and she is going to follow along with that no matter what. Yeah. That's what he thinks. And he, it is, I do love this idea that he like goes to a gift shop and he asks for like a, he, he's looking for a souvenir sized canoe. Like I'm thinking yeah. of like a Christmas ornament yeah, kind of thing. That part is just charming. Yeah. So he buys that and he decides he needs to make it seaworthy. So he spends all this time waterproofing it mm -hmm. and getting it ready to go in the water. <laughs> yeah. And she shows up and he's like, okay, great. We're going to go boating. And when he goes to find the canoe where he had stashed it, some kids had gotten into it and like destroyed all of his hard work and it's no longer seaworthy. Yep. And he loses his damn mind. He loses his shit completely. He has a tantrum. He, if that happens on a date with anyone, oh my God, you gotta run and get the heck out of there. Yeah, this is this does not bode well for um, a potential partner's like problem solving skills no. or just anything. <laughs> yeah, he has this pretty wild temper, actually, which we have not really seen a sign of. And I'm I'm paging through this section of my book right now, and just I had highlighted a bunch of lines from this scene, and he says some terrible like creepy, mean, aggressive things. So one thing he yeah, says he is. I'm afraid a woman can't understand these things, which, okay, thanks, Stuart, for that. I made note of that, too. I think he also said men like to fight. I'm not sure if he's yeah. the one who said it or a different character said it. Yeah, it's in there somewhere. And then Harriet's, like, trying to calm him down. And she's like, how about we just pretend that we're fishing? And he says, I don't want to pretend I'm fishing. Oh, yeah. 
Can you imagine? I mean, Harriet, you, she's doing the things you sometimes do when you're with someone like that, right? Trying to kind of yeah. manage the mouse. And yeah. First, he's like the guy who orders for you in the restaurant with his canoe. And then it doesn't go the way he wants. And he just loses it. Has a temper tantrum to the a shocking degree. Yeah. Do you remember when he shoots that arrow? I think he shoots the arrow and says something like, that's the finest thing I've ever done. Or Yeah. In defense of Margalo, he like shoots one of the cats. Right, right, right. So that's a little... That's a little glimpse into what might be coming. Yeah, some of the think pieces that I found that I referenced earlier sort of like point to some moments of toxic masculinity Mm -hmm. in this book, which I think it's very 1945. Mm -hmm. Yep. But Harriet like even invites him to go to dinner with her at the country club. Like she wants him to go to the dance. Even after he reveals himself to be such a brat, she's like, okay, like maybe we can turn this around. Let's just go away from the boat and find something else to do. And he refuses because he says he doesn't know how to dance. And then she, he's like, okay, I'm just going to leave now. Like he basically is like, I'm done with you. I tried. I'm out of here. And then the chapter, the chapter ends. It says, so am I, said Harriet. And she walked away along the wet path toward Tracy's lane leaving Stuart alone with his broken dreams and his damaged canoe. Drama. A great line, but, you know, kind of, it, it almost seemed like her leaving him with his broken dreams was was her wrongdoing a bit. Mm, like she's the villain. Yeah, leaving him alone with his broken dreams. Like we're, that's that's something that we should feel sorry for him now. Right, like he took all this time to get the canoe ready for you and you're just going to leave him. He was broken dreams and his poor and broken canoe. Aww. Mm-hmm. What should, what should mm-hmm. she have done? <laughs> you know, like, oh, how could she do that? No, that, that did not make me feel sad for him. Yeah, this was not Stort's finest hour. No, it was not. No. And I was, I was glad at that point that I was almost – saying goodbye to Stuart. And then there's one more chapter that the ending is really interesting. And there's kind of a lack of an ending. Like we really just see Stuart driving north in his car. And there's a lot of reflections about what it means to be driving north and how going north is a good thing. And that's where Margolo is. And Mm -hmm. it's beautiful writing. But yeah, I would think that a lot of kids might be frustrated with not knowing if he actually ever finds Margolo. Right. Not knowing if he ever finds her, ever goes home again, or is he just, is this this it here? (laughs) He's just off on the adventure. And yeah, it's a little, it does, it does kind of leave us wondering for some of those earlier relationships with his family have just been sort of ditched. Yeah, he actually never, I don't think even references his family again, or we never get any like interior thoughts of his yeah. where he's like, I miss yeah. my family. Like, no, no, it, I feel no, like, no. There's not a lot of relationship there. <laughs> just yeah, like every that. relationship that here. he meets. Yeah, he just seems to like cut ties with yeah. everybody yeah. in the book. And then at the end, he's just driving his car north. So I don't know. I guess it's an interesting way to end. And like I said, the writing in that last chapter is probably some of the best in the book. I really had a lot of lines to highlight just for how beautiful they were, but a little bit frustrating. Yeah. Even the canoe line and his broken dreams, that's a beautiful line. Yeah. But it's it's, just in terms of intent and happiness, feel sorry for him. It feels a little wrongheaded to me, but it is still beautiful. Yes, I agree with that. Deb, on the whole, 
How would you say that this experience of rereading Stuart Little in 2021 compares with your memories of the book from when you read it last, when you read it when you were a kid? Does it hold up? Has it let you down? Oh, it just is more nuanced. Yeah. And so it makes it it's just really interesting to me to read it through adult eyes. Yeah. There there was, I remembered only the magical things of being small and using small things as beds or skates or being on the boat. But yeah, there was there, there was some darkness there. And so after my own life experiences, particularly, I look at that and and yeah, it's a it's a different read. Yeah. I think that's a great way to capture it. I think I shared a lot of my uh, eyebrow-raising moments throughout this conversation, so I won't dwell on them. But I'm really glad we reread this book together, and I I so appreciate that we had this conversation. Other than Stuart Little, Deb, what have you been reading lately that you might recommend to our listeners a bit more enthusiastically? Oh my gosh! Well, it actually is pretty funny that we did cho- choose Stuart Little. <laughs> I don't think I really I didn't realize it, of course, but. Of course, I write a lot about toxic masculinity and misogyny, and so it was it was just kind of almost a a perfect choice. Let's see what am I reading now? Why is it whenever I get asked that question, <laughs> I cannot seem to remember it? I know that happens to me in my life all Does the time it? Mm-hmm. oh my gosh. I can tell actually I just finished one um by Sherry Turkle that was kind of her life story as a psychoanalyst and someone who studied technology and how those two things kind of came together. Uh, It was her life story. But I also just got, and I haven't started it yet, but I just got the plot, which all writer friends have been kind of talking about. So I'm kind of curious about that. Have you you read that, Allie? No, but I'll have to add it to my writer's reading list. Yeah, it's kind of, I guess, kind of a page turning thing with a lot of insidery stuff about writing in the publishing business. So I'm excited to get started on that one. Well, maybe we'll discuss that one yeah, after we go yeah, through that. Yeah, you know, I'm kind of I'm kind of ready to dive into that. And oh, I was so lucky to get an arc of Anthony Doerr's new book. And oh my gosh, I cannot believe the title is escaping me right now. It's sitting at the top of my stack and I've been looking longingly at it since I got it. Um, <laughs> but after, you know, all the light you cannot see, which has had to rise to one of my top favorite books of all time. I'm really, really looking forward to that. Maybe more than more than anything. Well, I will track down the title and yes, I can thank include you, that. Because I'm yeah. just drawing, of course, I'm drawing a blank right now when, when you asked. Yeah, I'll track it down and I'll include a link to it in the show notes as well as links to the other recommendations you shared. And your new book, Deb, I'd love for you to share a little bit more about your latest One Great Lie, which I know is now available wherever books are sold. Could you share a little bit more about it with us? Yeah, One Great Lie is about a young writer, Charlotte, who earns the right to participate in a summer-long writing workshop with one of her most favorite authors, not just most favorite, but one that's just really, she feels connected to and that really just kind of changed her life and in the ways that we can feel when we, you know, read certain, certain works by certain people. And so she goes uh, to Venice, Italy, where he lives part-time to participate in this workshop program. And 
while there, she's also hoping to delve into a longtime family mystery uh, about a writer in their lineage, a poet, a female poet, who it's been said may be the actual author of a very, very famous poem. As the summer goes on, though, the character that I mentioned, Luca Bruni, is a lot more... She learns a lot more about him that is shocking, surprising, disappointing, heartbreaking. And she also learns about the long history of powerful men and about the determination of creative girls going back to the time of the Renaissance. Uh, each chapter includes a little vignettes about long forgotten, some of our oldest feminists that I never knew existed teen poets uh, of the Renaissance. It's a book for book lovers, I'll tell you that, with a lot of ancient manuscripts, beautiful, incredible bookstores of Venice, beautiful, incredible, amazing libraries of Venice. And of course, just for us book lovers, just what it means to love books and how the written word can, can change us and, and change our lives. Oh my goodness, I've been over here squealing inside as you described your book. I'm so excited to read it and you have the perfect audience because of course the SSR community is full of book lovers and just general word nerds. And I don't know if you even know this, Deb, but we're going to be giving away a few copies over on SSR's Instagram the week the episode goes live. I did not. I'm so delighted. A blogger had said, she wrote this for us. And I thought, oh my gosh. absolutely we did us all of us who love books i love that so listeners if you're listening to this episode the week of july 20th when it goes live be sure that you head over to ssr's instagram ssr pod and enter to win a copy it's going to take everything in me not to keep all these copies for myself and to read them <laughs> all myself but i'm going to spread the love and deb i really appreciate you sharing more about your book and just spending some time with me today Allie, i really enjoyed it this was so much fun i i just really appreciate you having me Anytime. Thank you so much. Thank you. Bye. SSR is part of the Frolic Podcast Network. Find more podcasts you'll love at frolic.media slash podcasts. Thanks so much for listening to the SSR Podcast. Check out our website at www.ssrpodcast.com for show notes and other information. And be sure to connect with us on social media for updates on upcoming episodes, behind the scenes inside scoop, and some good old fashioned book talk. Find us at SSR Pod on Instagram and Twitter and search SSR Podcast on Facebook to join the group. To reach out directly, you can send me an email at hellossrpod at gmail.com. If you're loving the show, it would mean so much if you could subscribe, leave a five-star review, and share your thoughts with a comment. And don't forget to tell your friends, too. In the meantime, happy reading. I'll see you next time on the SSR Podcast. <laughs>